Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Turn this morning to a familiar passage, that of Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 6 and 7 this morning. There we read, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Probably heard recently that an airline got in trouble because a gate agent apparently laughed at the name of a five-year-old. The name of the five-year-old was Absidi, named or spelled A-B-C-D-E, Absidi. Now, I'm not commending the gate agent for what he or she did, for their behaviors or actions. But you have to know that naming your child like that is going to draw attention, positively, or in this case, and often, I would think, negatively. And so the mother may blame the airlines, but some, if not most of the blame, must be put upon herself. Because children do not come out pre-named or pre-labeled. We as parents are given that right, that authority to name our children. And that's a big deal. And it's something that parents have to go through. Almost immediately upon finding out of a pregnancy, the question then becomes, what will we name this child? And there's many questions that need to be asked. Sinclair Ferguson, in one of his books on Christmas, writes about all of these questions about what a child's name should be and what parents ask each other. Questions like, is there a name we like? Does anyone have it? What does it mean? Do we need to use a family name? Is there anyone that we admire that has this name? Anyone that would discourage us, i.e., People that we don't like who have this name. How will people react to this choice? Will the name suit the child when he or she grows up? Those and many, many more. I remember with one of our children, we had a name picked out. We were settled on it. name that we were going to name this child when they were born only to be awakened in the middle of the night with the frightening realization that the initials formed a not-so-good three-letter word. (laughs) Let's just say it quickly became the not-so-settled name, and we had to choose another combination. You have to think about many factors, and it can be stressful because, quite frankly, you only get one shot at naming each child. And you don't want to have to mess it up 
or mess this child up, perhaps. The naming of Jesus was not like that. There was no wondering, no determining, no deciding. In fact, it was dictated to Mary and Joseph by the Lord himself. They were told, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God the Father, as the true Father, named his Son. And in that way, it was the only uncomplicated part of Christ's birth. The only part that was straightforward in an otherwise unconventional pregnancy. And that was the name that was given, Jesus And that was the name that not only was he known by, but will be known for all eternity. It is a fitting name because Jesus means, as you know, the Lord saves. And indeed, he does. Isaiah never knew the Messiah by his given name. But what was revealed, his names or his titles are here in Isaiah chapter 9 And they are equally glorious. They demonstrate who this Christ, who this Messiah would be and even is this day. And so as we continue on looking at Christmas through the eyes of Isaiah, as we look at Christmas before Christ, Christmas B.C., we see that which is essential, the fundamental aspects of Christmas, the parts that are not to be missed So that our celebration this year would be on that which really matters. And so this morning we want to look at those four names, those four titles given by Isaiah. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we will look, Lord willing, at each one. But thus far we have seen in Isaiah's prophecies several aspects of Christ, the promised Christ. And they are things that are seemingly opposed to each other, yet come together in this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw in Isaiah chapter 7 that a sign would be given of a child being born. Now, a child being born is nothing new. There are 250 children born every minute of the day. But a virgin giving birth, a virgin conception, now, there has only been one of those. Likewise, the idea of Emmanuel, God with us. God has always been with us, but to be in flesh, to be incarnate in our own blood and body, well, that is entirely different, isn't it? And then again, last week from Isaiah chapter 9, we saw that the lights would shine upon us, shine on those in darkness, and that light would come from an obscure place, almost a distant place, that of Zebulun and Naphtali. And there we saw that that is exactly where Jesus grew up, in the town of Nazareth and around the Sea of Galilee. These tribes known as Zebulun and Naphtali. And again, that's the throne of David would be established, but it would be established through a little child. This is a part of the mystery of Christmas, isn't it? We are to marvel and be amazed at how God secured our redemption in the 
person and work of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine puts it well when he says this, Man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, the truth be accused of being a false witness, the teacher being beaten with whips, the foundation being suspended on wood, the strength that would grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that the life might die. Indeed, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have these things that seemingly almost seem as opposites coming together perfectly in Christ, and it should make us wonder and be amazed. So I hope this Christmas you are filled with the contemplation of Christ, that you would be like Mother Mary, pondering all of these things in her hearts. And whereas this mystery and intrigue might be very common in the birth narratives, when we come to Isaiah chapter 9, specifically verse 6, we have four names that are straightforward, that are plain and obvious. Four names or four titles. And yet, in these names, in these titles, they demonstrate the grandiose nature of this Messiah. Again, these things are not slight in nature. These are titles that cannot just be applied to anyone, anywhere. These are names that can only specifically fit upon one, the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not names that could fit just anyone else. This is not like a list that you ladies made for your future husband, or if you're not married, what your future husband will be. You know the list. He's going to be handsome, and he's going to be funny, and he is going to be nice, and he's going to have blue eyes, or, or maybe perhaps brown. And then you meet a guy and you say, look, he's the one. He meets everything on my list. All of these stipulations. Well, yes, he does, but so do about another thousand other dudes, perhaps, that could fit that entirety of that list and those characteristics. That's not what we see here with the titles of Christ. No, these are only four that could be fulfilled by him and him alone because they are too great. They're too majestic. They are too marvelous. And yet they are perfectly fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last week, this text is given in the context of an invading army. As the Assyrians are bearing down upon Judah and Jerusalem. These titles during Isaiah's day should have given the Israelites hope. Because they could only be true of God specifically revealed in the person of Christ, the child that was to be born, the son that was to be given. And what we see first is that he is a wonderful counselor. Sadly, I think we take this term counselor and we 21st centurize it, if you would, 
And we think of a professional counselor. A place that you would go and perhaps lay on a couch and pour out your problems. And if we can just kind of get it off our chest, then we feel a lot better. If we get it all out there, then that somehow helps us. And that's not to say that the Lord does not come alongside us. He doesn't hear our prayers or our burdens or our problems. Of course he does. Or not that we are not to pour out our hearts to the Lord. But I think the idea here is not a counselor in the professional sense. Because I don't think they had those specifically in Isaiah's day. The term counselor here I think should be seen more as we understand it in the legal sense. When we talk about hiring legal counsel. What are we saying when we do that? We're saying that we're going to have someone that's going to be our advocate. Someone that's going to be on our side. One that's going to represent us. That is going to be on our team. Not as just an encourager. Not just as a cheerleader. But one that is going to lay out a plan for us. Perhaps like a financial advisor would. Or a fitness or health coach might. One that has done this before, and in a sense has gone before us, that knows the way ahead, knows how to navigate the pitfalls and the dangers so that we can succeed in whatever that plan is that they are laying out for us. Recently I went on a camping trip with my son, it was a Boy Scout hiking camping trip. The problem was that where we were going to hike and where we were going to camp, no one had ever been before. And this was evidenced by the 20 minutes it took just to find the trailhead and a hike that took a lot longer than anticipated. And as a result, night quickly fell upon us and we had to finish our hike and find the campsite by flashlights. Not the most ideal circumstances, but it was because no one had been there before. No one had gone down that path. So as to show us the way, knowing how long it would take. And it's all right, it's okay for a hike. We survived. But it's not all right for life, is it? In life, you need to know one that knows the end from the beginning and every variable in between. That's the type of counselor we need. That is what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can find many experts on life. Can you not? But are they all-knowing? Are they all-powerful? Are they all-sufficient? No, absolutely not. But that is what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has not hidden that counsel from us. He has revealed it by his spirit and by his word. He is our advocate. He is our mediator. He is our counselor. He is one that has took on our flesh to show us the way to heaven. Because he is the way. As he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the wonderful counselor. And notice with each of these titles, they have a noun and an adjective before it. He's not just a counselor. He is the wonderful counselor. And so if you are looking 
for counsel, if you're looking for direction, a plan, a purpose this Christmas, if you need a way, if you need a truth, if you're seeking life, life abundantly, it is found all in this advocate that Isaiah tells us about in Isaiah chapter 9, one that has come alongside us, that has taken on our flesh and has been made one with us forever. And so why would we seek counsel anywhere else? We must come again to the feet of the wonderful counselor and come continually in prayer and in worship, asking that he would show us the way. Well, second, he is, or we could perhaps say, in addition to being a wonderful counselor, he is mighty a God. Yes, he would come as a child. Yes, the shepherds were told you'd find him in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger of all places. But do not be mistaken. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. Not just any Lord, not just any ruler. No, he's the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And as we saw last week surrounding this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 is all this kingly language that he's going to break the yoke. He's going to break the rod. He's going to break the staff of oppression as in the days of Midian. And we saw how that is referring to the days of Gideon when ten thousands of Midianites were struck down by only 300 Israelites at the helm of Gideon himself. But really, Gideon and the 300 did nothing. God did it all without Israel even raising a sword. Verse 5, it says that the increase of his government will know no end. And why? How could this be said? Well, it's because of this title, because he's a mighty God. He is the sovereign, all-reigning, all-omnipotent God of heaven and earth. Again, this could not just be fulfilled by anyone else. Not anybody can just take on the title God. In fact, they are forbidden from doing so. And the Ten Commandments themselves, this is God-like in size and in scope. And this is what makes the coming, the coming of Christ, so great. Is not only did he have a plan, all politicians have a plan, right? The problem is that they're not always able to fulfill that plan. That is not a problem with Christ. Christ is able to secure the plan. He's able to secure victory over sin and death and darkness and hell itself. No foe is too great, too strong. No problem is too big for our God, for he is the mighty God. This is one of the clearest verses of Christ's divinity in all of Scripture. Why do we say that Christ was God? Because it says right here that the child, the son that would be given, would be called mighty God. How dare anyone else take on that title than God himself? It would be blasphemous. But Christ is exactly that. And so, like the wise men, we come seeking this child, but we come bowing down and worshiping him because he is the mighty God. Third, he is the everlasting father. As you know, in the Trinity, there are 
three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet one in their personhood. They are distinct and they're not to be confused. And so it's somewhat seemingly confusing because we are talking about the second person, the Son. And so why is he called Father here? Well, it's not to be confused with God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Rather, this is speaking again of a name or of a title. That which we mean when we speak of Emmanuel or this counselor, this mighty God. What kind of Emmanuel or mighty God would he be? Well, he'd be as a father. Just as we would speak of George Washington being the father of our nation. Or we speak of our forefathers. It's not always fathers in the biological sense, the biological term. Rather, they are father figures in the roles that we play. Again, in this church, we talk about having fathers and mothers. Right? We, we talk about Dot Turner being a, a mother. Don Wilkes being a father. And the leadership and care and the roles that they have played. Sometimes these quote-unquote fathers, these quote-unquote mothers are more Motherly and more fatherly than even our biological fathers and mothers were to us. And that is what we are saying here, that the Emmanuel will be be a father figure. He will have that fatherly care, that fatherly protection, that fatherly love for us. And we are not to miss that love and that care and that term. This is a relational, a familial, a fraternal word. It is filled with love. And in so doing, we see again that this Emmanuel will not just lay out the plan, he will not only just secure the plan, but the plan is that we will be brought into a family. We'll be brought into the family of God. John chapter 1 tells us this, to all who receive him, that is Christ, all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this is what... We are. He is as a father to us. Notice, not just a father for a time, but he is the everlasting father. His love, his care, his provision for us will never leave. My three-year-old son is at that stage where every morning, as I'm about ready to leave for work, he asks, Daddy, are you going to work? And I tell him that I am, and he he goes, no, I want you to stay and play with me. I usually tell him the same thing. I say, I'd I'd love to, buddy, but unfortunately we can't live on Legos. And so I need to, daddy needs to go to work. And it's very sweet, and I try to treasure it, knowing that it, it won't last forever. Whereas I will always be his father. I can't always be fatherly to him, can I? Because I've got to go to work and I've got to go to other places and I can't be in two places at once. That is never true with the Lord Jesus Christ, is it? He is always there. His fatherly care always protects us, always watches over us. And some of you had and have wonderful fathers. Some of you don't know what that term even means. Because either you did not have a father, no true father, or 
your father was not a good father. What we see in this term is that in Christ you have an everlasting father. You've been adopted. You've been brought into the family of God. And you are loved with that everlasting love. You're loved with the love of an everlasting father. Well, fourth, we see then the prince of peace. That this is what the angels sang that we read earlier. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom his favor rests. This world is in need of peace. Ever since the fall, it's been in ruin and in chaos and tumult. And we pray for world peace and we need peace personally. And what this is saying is that in Christ there is peace. Now, as we look out in the world, there's still war and rumors of war. And that is because, well, I think we're told in Psalm 85 that there's only peace when there's righteousness. Psalm 85, 10 says, righteousness and peace kiss each other. And the world is without peace because they're without the righteousness of God. As the psalmist again says in Psalm 2, the nations rage and the people plot in vain. They throw off his bonds and cast the cords of God's rule, of his righteousness, away. And because they cast those away, then they rage. The nations rage and rage against each other and will until Christ comes back again and secures that peace upon this earth. But we see in Christ that he is the one that brings about that peace. He is the prince of peace. And a prince has an interesting role, does he not? If you think about it in royalty, he is royal. He has a title. But in a sense, he has no authority. But he has an access as a Son to the one that does. And in that sense, they can be very much a mediator. Very much one that the commoners, as they say, can relate to. You think of Jonathan in the days of Saul. How Jonathan tried to reconcile David, his friend, and Saul, his father. Jonathan was a prince. But he couldn't bring about that peace between Saul and David because Saul was a sinful and jealous man. What we see in the Lord Jesus Christ that as the prince, he is the true mediator. That he took on that flesh and blood. He was made one with us. And yet at the same time, as we sit, he is God. And so he is perfectly in one person, fully God and fully man. And so in his flesh, he brings about reconciliation. He brings about peace through his incarnation and especially through his death and resurrection and ascension. He is the prince of peace. Again, don't miss the progression in these titles. I think they seemingly build upon each other. He's the counselor. He's the way that gives the plan. He's the God who secures that plan and secures the victory. He's the father that brings us into the family, brings us home, and he is the prince that brings about peace. And that's because he is who he is. 
He's not just any counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. As we said at the very beginning, he was named Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He is our Savior, not just in part, but in whole. He is the complete Savior. He is the name above all names. And he is ours. Notice here as we finish in verse 6. It says, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That unto us is extremely important. That at this Christmas time, we're not just celebrating that a child is born. Not just that the Son of God is given. No, He is given unto us. He is given to me. He is given to you. Just as a present would be given on Christmas morning. So God the Father gives of His Son to us. And what do we have? What do we receive in this gift? We receive a complete Savior. And so this Christmas... Receive the greatest gift that you could possibly receive. And receive it by faith. And take it unto yourself. And take these titles and make them personal to you. That he isn't just a wonderful counselor. He is my wonderful counselor. He is my mighty God. He is my everlasting Father. He is my Prince of Peace. That is the gift. That is the good news of Christmas. May we enjoy it and may we relish in it. For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Join me in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, these titles, these names, are too marvelous, too wondrous for us to even begin to comprehend. Lord, too amazing for us to contemplate. But yet, Lord, may we continue to unwrap the mystery that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate flesh, made ours, securing our salvation, securing the way to heaven, because he is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the one that has forever and for all eternity secured peace for us. Lord, may those be the gifts that we rejoice in and are glad about and that fill us with joy. For we pray this in Christ Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.